You may be seated. God's people should never get weary of singing that wonderful hymn that reminds us of our faithful, faithful covenant king. And when I think about what institutions or what aspects of our life remind us of God's covenant faithfulness, I think of marriage. When I officiate a wedding ceremony, as I did this past week, I'm reminded, I try to remind the bride and the groom, I try to remind those who are gathered as witnesses to that husband and wife taking those marriage vows that that marriage is an irrevocable covenant commitment that is made between the husband and wife before God and those witnesses, that makes it binding, to fulfill their marriage vows, an irrevocable covenant commitment. I think God gave us marriage, obviously, for the biblical reasons that we're familiar with, but I think another reason he gave us marriage is just simply that we would be reminded of that ultimate marriage, that ultimate covenant between God and his people. In fact, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5 uses marriage to help us understand the relationship between Christ and the church as he talks about the roles of the husband and why so marriage pictures for us. This gives us a taste of the greater covenant that the covenant king has with his covenant people, this relationship that he has established with the likes of you and me, sinful people, that will last for all eternity. Leviticus chapter 2 is primarily about the permanence of the covenant relationship that God has established with his people. And we'll look at three things this morning. The form of the covenant. We'll also look at the tribute that is made to the covenant king. And then lastly, we'll just be reminded of the permanence of the covenant. I think we see these three things in Leviticus chapter 2. Now, we'll not read the entire chapter. We'll just read selected verses verses 1 through 3, then verse 11, and then verse 13. I ask you to read the chapters at some point today or this week, the whole chapter, but we'll just take these portions. So take your Bibles, turn to Leviticus 2, and we'll read portions of this chapter. When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be a fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it. And bring it to Aaron's sons, the priest, and he shall take from it a handful of the fine flour and oil with all of its frankincense. And the priest shall burn this as it is, memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offering. Now, verse 11. No grain offering that you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for ye shall burn no leaven nor any honey as a food offering to the Lord. And now, verse 13. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering, with all your offering, you shall offer salt. 
The word of the Lord is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. It is perfect, reviving the soul. And each one of us should desire that God's word would revive our souls even today. So if you would join me in a word of prayer as we commit this proclamation of God's word to him, asking for his blessing, let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you that you are the one true God, that you love your people, that you have condescended to us and have made a covenant, the first covenant with Adam. Adam violated that covenant, and it was gracious. We also see your grace in the second covenant, the covenant of grace that is made with Christ. Father, I pray that we might be reminded that you have established a permanent relationship with your people through Jesus, that we might be encouraged today to really live for you, being confident that you will never forsake us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first, let's look at, let's look at the form of the covenant. In fact, the entire book of Leviticus has the backdrop of the covenant that God made with Israel there at the foot of Mount Sinai, Sinai, also known as the Mosaic Covenant. And the covenant at Sinai is an administration of the second covenant that God made with Christ, the covenant of grace. As I offer this up in prayer, Adam failed to fulfill the stipulations of the covenant of works, and so God graciously entered into that second uh, covenant. And so this, this, the covenant at Sinai is just simply the covenant of grace for the people at that particular time. And the covenant of Sinai, very interestingly, follows a form of an ancient type of covenant that Israel was, with which they were very familiar. It's called a suzerain vassal covenant. And maybe you've come across that at some point. So let me explain this covenant. So there would be a great king, a suzerain, who would have many nations under his rule. And this suzerain, this great king, would establish a covenant relationship with a lesser king, a vassal, and his kingdom. And there would be this covenant, all kinds of stipulations. There would be a preamble that, that identifies who the parties are in this covenant. Uh, there would be an historical prologue that would detail the history of the suzerain with this particular vassal. There would be listed stipulations and obligations. There would be blessings and curses. There would be provisions for the vassal to get a copy of that covenant to be read publicly uh, to the people. And there would also be witnesses that would that would verify that indeed this covenant was ratified. What makes a marriage a marriage? Really, it is being done before God in the presence of witnesses. And then oftentimes there was a mill associated with these covenants to ratify them. And often, especially with a suzerainty treaty covenant, the vassal would take animals and slaughter them It's called taking a self-maledictory oath. If you ever wonder 
uh, why, like in Genesis 15 and verse 18, that we'll refer to at the end of the message, why it talks about Abraham cut or made a covenant, literally cut a covenant. It relates to this particular way covenants were ratified by the vassal slaughtering an animal and laying its pieces out there and saying, Oh, great Susan, if I violate the covenant, may I be slaughtered like these animals. And so the vassal was bound with this oath, this self-maledictory oath to take this covenant. What's amazing is that as you read Exodus uh, chapters 20 through 24 and then refer to Deuteronomy 30 and Leviticus chapter 26, you will find all the elements of the suzerain vassal covenant that I just mentioned related to the covenant at Sinai. In other words, God is the suzerain and Israel is the vassal and he binds them with this particular covenant form. Now, the second thing, not only was there this form of the covenant that the covenant at Sinai took, that the people understood exactly what was going on at Sinai when God made this covenant with them, but secondly, we want to look at the tribute that is to be made to the covenant king. Now, in the ancient suzerain vassal covenants that were made, the vassal would pay tribute to the, to the suzerain to express his fidelity, his loyalty to the suzerain, and the vassal would say, I have every commitment to fulfill this covenant, O great vassal. In other words, he wanted to be in good standing with the suzerain, because after all, the suzerain was the suzerain, and if the vassal disobeyed, he would suffer the curse of the covenant. The Hebrew word that we find in Leviticus chapter 2 that is translated grain offering here in the Hebrew Bible or in the Old Testament, in secular works, the very same word is used in relation to the suzerain vassal covenants and it's translated tribute. And so the idea of a vassal paying tribute to the overlord, to be in good standing with him, is what's really behind this grain offering that we find here in Leviticus chapter 2. God is the suzerain. He has bound Israel to this covenant. And Israel is responsible to pay tribute to God, expressing their loyalty, their fidelity to him, and their intention to keep the covenant stipulations to be faithful. And we need to understand that is behind what we read in Leviticus 2 about this grain offering. It is God's covenant. It is about the people paying tribute, expressing their loyalty to God. Now, let's just dig into Leviticus chapter 2. I'm not going to deal with everything in Leviticus 2. There's so much here. I just simply want to briefly state several things. First of all, there are three types of grain offerings. Uncooked, cooked, and then the first fruits. And you can read about those in verses 1 through 3 that we've already read. The cooked grain offerings in verses 4 through 10. The first fruits at the end of the chapter verses 14 through 16. There are four ingredients. It's like we had a recipe here. There are four ingredients 
to these grain offerings. Fine flour, frankincense. In fact, yesterday in my little atomizer, I, I put in frankincense as I was working uh, through this passage. So fine flour, franken, frankincense. There would also be oil and salt. Those are the four ingredients. And there are also two portions that we find listed here in Leviticus chapter 2. There was the memorial portion, the handful that the priest took, and then there was the rest that the priest was able to take. We'll unpack those in just a moment. But I want to focus, just just to be exemplary of this passage, I want to focus on the uncooked type. The offerer would bring 8 to 16 cups. That would be equivalent um, to a tenth of an ephah, that we find reference in Exodus 29:40. So he'd bring 8 to 16 cups of fine flour. Fine flour meaning the best, the very best flour. He would mix it with the oil. And then we know in verse 13 that every grain offering was to have salt. So he'd throw the salt in there. So fine flour, oil, and salt all mixed together. Then he would take the incense that is distilled from gum balm. And it's very expensive, and it, not today, but then it was a very costly <laughs> incense. If it were really expensive, I wouldn't be burning it in an atomizer. And they would take whatever portion of incense, and they would simply put it right on top so they wouldn't mix the incense in because when the offerer brought the offering and presented it to the priest, he was to take a handful that would contain all of the incense. And see, then he would burn it on that fire. And the first fruit offering detailed at the end of the chapter is a very specific type of offering, but the process is similar. The process is similar for the three types of cooked grain offering that you will see, where, where the, the baked or the fried uh, or the grilled cake would be covered with oil, the salt would be mixed in with the fine flour, it would be crumbled up, then the incense put on, then a handful taken by the priest and burned on the altar. And so that's the grain offerings. Everybody got that? But there are two ingredients that you can't use. They're prohibited. Honey and leaven. And why were they prohibited? We read about that in verse 11. No one really knows. But there's some speculation that are given. One speculation is leaven symbolizes corruption. Leaven also symbolizes the expanse of God's kingdom. So that's, that's possible. Leaven and honey come together, they ferment, and the yeast is a living organism, and you're not supposed to sacrifice a living thing. And that might be another reason, because if you, if you had leaven and honey in with the grain offering and fermentation was taking place, you would actually be sacrificing something living. That's a possibility. And um, so, and it could also simply mean that with the fermentation process, the offering would change. That might be a reason. Bottom line is, we really don't know, but that it's prohibited for a burnt grain offering. However, in verse 12... If you're bringing a first fruits offering, because these offerings were often 
associated with the burnt offerings, but you could also bring a first fruit offering really any time, then that offering, that grain offering could have honey and leaven in it because it was not burned this, in, in verse 12, that specific offering. So a portion of the grain offering, after the priest took the handful and burnt it on the altar, what was left, the rest was for the priest, literally as payment, as a salary for the priest ministering in the context of the temple. So the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 verses 13 through 14, one of my favorite passages, refers to the church providing provisions for their ministers so they can be freed up for all the worldly cares and be about ministering in the context of the congregation. So Paul writes and turn to 1 Corinthians 9. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings in the same way? The Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living from the gospel. Paul's instructions are really based on what we read about here in Leviticus chapter 2. And so that's the portion, the rest of the offering. But now I want to focus for just a moment on the other portion that's mentioned here, that handful that the priest takes and burns it on the altar. It's called the memorial portion. You see that term memorial portion in verses 2, 9, and 16. This offering was not only to be a tribute by Israel to show their fidelity to keep the covenant, but also it was to be an offering for God's remembrance of them as his covenant people, that he would pour out his favor upon them, that he would give them care as his covenant people. Now, as I said earlier, in the, one of the passages I read, we don't have to worry about God forgetting who we are, but don't we oftentimes forget who we are as God's covenant people? And so as these grain offerings were brought, as this memorial portion was brought, saying, God, remember me, your covenant child. Remember to favor me. Remember to care for me. It was really causing the offerer to remember that he is a covenant child who has God's favor and who enjoys God's constant care. Lord, remember me. First, the form of the covenant helps us, secondly, to understand the significance of bringing a tribute to God and a memorial portion to God. It was about the offering expressing the Lord God is is our God and confirming that the Lord God is our covenant king. He is ours and we are his. Think about what that meant to Israel as they are there still at the foot of Mount Sinai. 
going through all of these various instructions that God was giving them through Moses about how they were to relate to him and being reminded that God will remember them as they travel to the promised land and inhabit the promised land, that they will be favored by God, that they will experience God's care in that land flowing with milk and honey. And may we also consider the significance of this truth for us. The grain offering was, offering was often associated with the burnt offering. Last week, as we look at the burnt offering, we could say the burnt offering was about the offer being forgiven by God, and now the grain offering that would also be presented as a meal was about the offer expressing his fidelity to God and remembering that he has God's favor and blessing. He remembers us as his people upon whom his favor rests and his care is given. And look before you today, this, this table of bread and wine. This table is an affirmation that the Lord is our covenant king and we are his covenant people. As we come to this table, it is a very similar thing happens as the grain offering here in Leviticus chapter 2 and also the burnt offering in Leviticus chapter 1 in that we are reminded that through Christ Jesus our sins are forgiven. He's the once for all sacrifice. We're also reminded that we have God's favor, that we enjoy his blessing as his covenant people and we are also expressing our loyalty to God to keep his covenant to repent to believe to walk in obedience before him so we've got this this covenant form that we've talked about and then the tribute that we are to bring and how it relates to the Lord's table and thirdly the permanence of the covenant Jesus gave the instructions to celebrate the Lord's table and Carl read about this in Matthew chapter 26. I'll just simply read verse 29 where Jesus said, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now what does that communicate about what this table declares? At least one of the things this table declares communicates permanence. That if we are in covenant relationship with God through Christ that he has promised that we will be with him for all eternity in heaven and so we are affirmed in the fact that Jesus says I will never leave you nor forsake you and in in other words there is nothing that we can do that would cause Jesus to bring an end to his covenant relationship with us. There's nothing we can do that would separate us from being a part of this covenant relationship. Now, how does permanence of a covenant, how is that demonstrated in Leviticus chapter 2? One word, salt. We find in verse 13 this phrase, the salt of the covenant. We also find in verse 13 that no grain sacrifice is to be offered without it having salt. 
And this salt of the covenant represents the permanence of God's covenant relationship with his people. The salt reminded the people in Leviticus chapter 2 and reminds us today, this table reminds us today, that nothing can separate us from the covenant people of God, that we are his and he is ours. This table, that grain sacrifice, confirmed and affirmed that in the heart and mind of the giver. So one reality for us is this. We have the confidence that God is never going to cast us out of this covenant to forsake us. And so we have the freedom to boldly live for him even we have the confidence to risk even failing, hopefully with the intention of being obedient to the covenant stipulations. Now, I would suggest to you that the permanence of marriage is an earthly demonstration of this, though it is certainly the inferior uh, covenant. But, uh, of course, there's a difference between the covenant of marriage and the covenant that God establishes with his people. The definition of marriage that was given by uh, the Richardsons when they were here several years ago for a marriage conference that I continue to use today is that marriage is an irrevocable covenant commitment between two perfect people, right? Did did I misspeak? Did Did I say two perfect people? Oh, I meant to say to imperfect people. So God's covenant with us is between a perfect covenant king and an imperfect people. So that's a profound difference. But nonetheless, the covenant of marriage being permanent is, I believe, an earthly picture of the greater reality that God's covenant is permanent with us. And so we have this imperfect husband, this imperfect wife, in this institution that God has instituted, and they've made this irrevocable covenant commitment in taking their marriage vows before witnesses, and more importantly, or just as importantly, uh, before God. And the first reality is that regardless, and I'll just use my marriage to Renee and her marriage to me. Regardless of how imperfect I am, now I have every intention to be perfect, but I've yet to achieve that, Uh, not even for a moment. But even if I'm just downright sinful, I have the confidence that Renee is not going to leave me. And then secondly, because of that, I have the freedom to even make mistakes and have the confidence that even when I make mistakes, I remember one time I attempted to do the right thing by spending time with Renee, but I did it in the wrong way by saying, Renee, let me schedule you in my daytimer. Good eye, right direction, wrong application, big mistake. But yet, I knew that Renee was not going to leave me. So what is the glue that holds imperfect Tim, and by the way, imperfect 
Renee together. If it were our feelings, you would have gotten another pastor a long time ago because we surely would have, would have probably crashed and burned as a married couple. Think about if your marriage is based on feelings. I have to admit that there are days where Renee and I don't particularly like one another. Is that true? True. Thankfully, it wasn't this morning. <laughs> but let's see, there are six other days during the week, right? Okay. Um, I think the toughest day for Christian families is Sunday morning. But not for pastors' families, because I'm usually not around. So, I'm, you know, absence is good sometimes. But think about that. No, the glue that holds us together surely is not our feelings. They come and go. We're just imperfect. The glue that holds us together is this irrevocable covenant commitment that we made before God and witnesses, this binding commitment. We may fall out of like for one another, as Tim Keller says, but we should never fall out of love because marital love is based on this commitment, this irrevocable covenant commitment that we have made. This, listen to the, the vows, the traditional vows that I like to, to use. I, man, wife, Take you, wife, man. Sometimes I get those confused. Uh, to be my wedded wife, husband. And I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful husband or wife for better, for worse, in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish and for the wife to obey. I like that. As long as we both shall live. Those are the vows, the traditional vows that husbands and wives take before God and these witnesses that really is the irrevocable covenant commitment that they are making to one another to keep these vows. And what do these vows say? That nothing, and I would say even this, not even adultery, not even if there are biblical grounds for divorce, nothing because we, there may be a reason to get a divorce because of adultery, but the Bible says repentance and forgiveness, doesn't it? And I would say the vows say, no, I'm committed to you no matter what. If you're sick, if you're angry, I'm going to fulfill my vows even if you don't fulfill your vows. That's what these vows, that's what this covenant commitment indicates I think these vows simply are an earthly though imperfect reflection of the permanence that marriage is to be according to God's institution until death do us part obviously but they picture they, they point to the greater covenant that God has with us that nothing get it nothing you can't do enough for God to, if you're in Christ Jesus, you can't do anything that is going to move God to say, I'm done with you, you're out of the covenant. If you are truly saved through Jesus Christ. Man, think about those Israelites who had already messed up so bad at the foot of Mount Sinai. 
with that golden calf, bringing their little 8 to 16 cups of fine flour with oil, with salt, with frankincense dabbled on top. And the realization of what they were doing is God saying, I am your covenant king and you are my covenant people and nothing, nothing is going to separate me from you and you from me. Now think about that. And that's exactly what this covenant meal is all about. It's exactly what, do you see a, self, a self-maledictory oath that has been taken in, in this table that is set before you? In this bread that is going to be broken in just a, or broken in just a moment? In this cup where symbolizing blood poured out on it? Do you see a self-maledictory oath that was taken to... To not only bring about the blessings of the covenant, but also to take the curse of the covenant to ensure that even when God's people violate the covenant, they will not experience the curse of the covenant because the curse has already been taken. So let me explain what I've just said. If you go to Genesis chapter 15 and verse 18, you will see God telling Abraham, to slaughter animals, to divide the, the pieces. And a smoking fire pot and a cauldron, a theophany of God, passes through those animal pieces. And this is what Abraham saw. God passing through these animal pieces to ratify the covenant. God taking the south maledictory oath upon himself, saying, Abraham, if I don't fulfill my covenant promises to you, may, may I be slaughtered like that animal. Now, Abraham was obligated to repent, believe, and to walk in obedience, and that's the obligation that we are under. But that picture of God taking the self-maledictory oath upon himself is seen in the cross of Jesus Christ. On the cross of Jesus Christ, Jesus, who fulfilled every stipulation and obligation of the covenant for us, was hung on a cross to take the curse, the penalty of violating the covenant so that we would never ever have to suffer that. So listen, not even our unfaithfulness will separate us from the covenant relationship with God. Can you believe that? That is just how gracious and good and loving God is. So the bottom line... Jesus is the faithful husband who will never, ever divorce his bride, the church. Let us pray. Father, I would ask that you would remind us of these incredible realities of your covenant and that we might come even to this table with a renewed sense that you are our covenant king and that you're faithful and that we are your covenant people through Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. If you would take your hymnal, turn to hymn number 94. We'll sing the first three stanzas of How Firm a Foundation. Please stand.
You may be seated. It's my privilege to invite all of you here today who have put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life. If Jesus is your Lord and Savior, if he is your King and 